Welcome to Strong Runner Chick Radio, a leading online community where our goal is to educate, empower, and connect female distance runners across the world. We believe in healthy running, fueling, and embracing our strength as female distance runners inside and out. Through interviews with top professional, collegiate, and master's level runners, leading dietitians, coaches, sports psychologists, and runners of all shapes and sizes, we hope to spread the message that there is no one-size-fits-all approach to distance running. Now, let's get to the show. Hey, Strong Runner Chicks, it's Megan here introducing today's guest, Christine Yu. Christine is an award-winning freelance journalist covering sports, science, and health for publications like Outside Magazine, Women's Running, Runner's World, and others. She's currently working on a book on women and sport and the science behind their performance, which examines the underrepresentation of women in sports and exercise science research. She's also a runner, a former yoga teacher, and she says a wannabe surfer. But after speaking with Christine today, I say otherwise. I believe she's probably way, way better than myself and, and could teach us a few things about surfing. She lives in Brooklyn, New York with her husband and her two sons. And this conversation I really enjoyed. Um, we talked a lot about uh, gender and representation in sport in many different ways beyond just gender. Uh, we talk about safety while running, alluding to um, other topics like the female athlete triad, and you know, really honing in on the the differences, the uniqueness, I think, of women in sport and how we can begin to start highlighting more, more women in sport and think about the nuances that could go into our training specifics, our bodies, and our science in general. So had a really great conversation. I was fortunate to connect with Christine through the Running Industry Diversity Coalition, which is RIDC. Really encourage you to go check it out online. Uh, amazing group of people there. Also a shout out to Jasmine Sanchez and Jinghuan uh, Lu Turvalon, who has been on previous episodes or episode with myself. Uh, I believe that was probably five or so episodes back. Um, so go check that one out. We talked a lot about representation and uh, Asian, Asian American populations, particularly in the sport of running. Um, just want to continue to, you know, really bring light to these topics. And I think, you know, at the beginning, I, um, talking about topics that were beyond what I could experience myself um, were certainly somewhat difficult, I would say. Not that I couldn't see others' perspectives. I certainly feel that I'm able to, but I, I think it was more so even just talking with you now, knowing that someone on the other end is listening, judging potentially, and um, you know, hearing everything that I'm saying, everything that that other person is saying, and knowing the best way or hopefully the best way to come to the table, to come to the conversation and, and have a, a discussion, you know, that really um, does them justice, that does whoever, whoever my guests are on this show, whoever is on SRC, all of these 167 plus amazing women and guests we've had on, I, I just want to do them justice and I want to bring light to their stories. And so that is always my my intention here, uh, as you can hopefully tell, it's not not to highlight myself, um, but I do know that I also, in order to do that, need to show up fully myself. So that's just been such a process, such a learning journey, especially over the past six to 12 months, um, 
plus during COVID. And I don't know if you're feeling that at all, but this sort of like showing up to the table, even when it's virtual, right? And continuing to show up uh, can be exhausting at times. So just wanna say if you're someone out there that's been putting yourself out there in any new way, even if it's these private conversations um, that are really you know, important to be having right now, I just want to give you big props and say, I know how you feel and I'm here right right there with you. So anyway, uh, enjoy this episode with Christine and hope that you learned something new from it. Please be sure to follow Christine and connect with her. Uh, her website is linked in the show notes. She is also a phenomenal freelance journalist and writer. So if you have you know, links to publications. If you're someone that loves reading up on the sports science and women's training, do stay tuned. Um, do reach out to Christine if you have an opportunity for her and be sure to stay tuned for her book that's coming out. I'm pretty excited about it. So all that being said, here we go into this episode. If you like these long intros, let me know. If it's just too rambly, I understand. I'll try and refrain from rambling too much. Want to keep these under five minutes. Just fill you in on life and hopefully uh, connect with you beyond just the podcast conversation. So all that said, enjoy the show. Go ahead and we are live. All right. Welcome back, Strong Runner Chicks, to another episode of SRC Radio. Today it's Megan here, and I am joined by Christine Yu, who I'm very excited to talk with today. Uh, Christine is an award winning freelance journalist. I, um, of course, introduced her, but I'm really excited to, to dive more into her book that she's working on uh, regarding women and sports and the science behind their performance and just the wonderful work that she. She does in all realms. She's also a runner, a former yoga teacher, and she says a wannabe surfer, um, which, you know, again, I have tried surfing once or twice, and I know how difficult that is and uh, how challenging it is. So that is one of many things I'm excited to dive into today, um, among all of her great work in the running and journalism industry. So Christine, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me here. I'm excited to chat. Yeah, thanks for being on. So we love to just start our guests off with a simple, but of course, maybe a complex question too of how you initially got your start in running or how you got involved in running. Yeah, so I kind of grew up playing sports. Um, it wasn't necessarily a choice. It was kind of like at school, <laughs> you had to play sports after school. So um, that was always kind of built into it, but I didn't really start running, I don't think until was a senior year of high school. Um, and it was largely because um, at my high school, you had the, you know, you could either do sports or you also had the option of doing community service for your PE requirement. And if you did that, you also had to do what they called basics, which, is, which was essentially like 30 minutes of some sort of activity or whatnot. Um, so I think it was like my senior spring at that point, I was like, I, you know, I don't really want to play sports this term. Um, I was doing community service. And so during that time, me and two of my friends, instead of being stuck in the gross indoor track, like in the beautiful spring weather, we would start running around campus and off campus and stuff like that. Um, and that was kind of how I got my start doing that. And then just kind of continued running for fun and kind of for, for exercise throughout college. And here we are many, many years later, kind of it's stuck. Yeah. Awesome. Where did you, uh, where'd you grow up and end up going to college? Um, I grew up in Connecticut and then my family moved to California um, 
in when I was in junior high, so between seventh and eighth grade, um, moved out to the San Francisco Bay Area. I only lived out there for about two years because then I came back east and went to boarding school in Massachusetts um, and then kind of stayed on the East Coast, went to college at Columbia. Um, yeah. And Very neat. Yeah. Quite lessons. the transition, I can imagine, to move <laughs> from coast to coast. Yeah, no, it was... Um, it was fun. I mean, one would think that, you know, most people would would love to move to California and I did love it. But at the same time, I really I missed being on the East Coast. I kind of had it stuck in my head that I was going to go to to this school that my where I ended up going to high school. So that's kind of yeah. what I did. Very neat. Thanks for sharing. Um, awesome. So yeah, when it comes to school and um, we do have some college students that listen in, how did you decide what to pursue from the get-go? Was it, was it writing or journalism or how did you end up finding that field? Yeah, writing and journalism was nowhere on my radar at all. Um, when I went to college, I was pre-med and my plans were to go to medical school and be a doctor of some sort afterwards. Um, and writing, I, I didn't even, I mean, obviously I knew that there were journalists and reporters and like that existed as a profession, but it just never was anywhere on my radar that I thought that it was something I could do because I never identified myself as a writer per se. Um, so for me, it was this combination of, I knew that I wanted to be pre-med, but at the same time, I also um, had this love of art. Um, so I was actually an artistry major. Um, so it made sense in a lot of ways to, you know, to be in New York City, kind of to be in the middle of this like incredible place where there's literally art all around you. You have like all the ancient to old masters and, and whatnot in all these museums to kind of contemporary modern art going on in all the galleries as well. So that was a huge driving force for ending up at Columbia. Yeah, I'm imagining uh, being in medical school and having this, uh, you know, I have a lot of friends that are in the medical field. It's just, it's very demanding, right? Time consuming, demanding in terms of the science and like the how to, and then also having this pull or this draw towards the arts is really fascinating. And um, I'm wondering how you ended up kind of making those first steps or maybe uh, toe steps into writing or art, um, if it was, you know, a project you did or some sort of experience that you had that led you sort of to, to move uh, directions? Yeah, so I mean, for on, on the art side of things, my, my dad was um, a neurosurgeon and he was also an artist. So he loved to paint and draw. Um, so I kind of knew like that was, had always been in my background. Um, and I loved kind of doing art when I was growing older, um, but I also, I don't know if it, it, it's kind of the, the, the stereotypical kind of Chinese immigrant story, right? Where it's like, well, but art isn't really a career. You can't make a life out of that. Um, so I didn't necessarily think that that was something that I could, again, kind of could pursue as a career. Um, but the idea around art history and this idea around working in museums kind of, again, grew up in high school because I had an amazing teacher there who really showed me I don't know, just opened my eyes to be able to see things differently and to think about art in a different way and very analytical and realizing that it wasn't just necessarily a picture and a medium or like a sculpture or something like that, but just the ways in which it intersects with all these different aspects of our life and our culture, which really fascinated me. Um, and I probably would say it's through studying art history and kind of through studying 
um, you know, really pursuing a liberal arts degree in that way that I really started to hone my writing skills and <laughs> learn how to make a good argument, learn how to tell a good story. And, um, you know, obviously part and parcel to that is learn how to research and, you know, kind of find out who those hidden figures are, you know, in these different worlds. Um, so that kind of, you know, definitely set the stage. Um, again, the writing piece of it probably didn't come into play really until I'd say probably six or seven years ago. Again, like I said, like it, it would, a writer wasn't really an identity that I that I connected with or really saw as possible. Um, but probably six or seven years ago, when ironically when I first learned to surf, um, was when I started writing again really for myself and kind of telling stories for myself on a blog that I thought no one was reading and stuff like that. Um, but it really kind of, I don't know, it, it kindled something in me, again, kind of learning about this power of storytelling and how by telling our stories, it allows us to connect with so many other people. Um, and it allows not only me to kind of process my experience and kind of what I'm going through, but it also help, can help other people kind of process those similar experiences. It's really fascinating. I feel like there's so much there I want to dive into. Um, just having started Strong Runner Chicks to be able to tell other stories or share other stories. And also the, um, you know, the the telling of your own story. Like, I, I wonder what role that played, if any, um, if you found it like sort of a you know, in telling other people's stories, is that sort of where you began? And then did it lead to you being able to share more openly your own story, whether it was with running or with surfing or sport or identity? Um, yeah, I'd love for you to speak a little more on that. If you felt like one of those had to come first, or they both kind of went hand in hand. I think for me, it was learning how to tell my own story that probably came first, which is ironic because it's usually hard, probably harder, right, to kind of tell your own story. Um, but I think the reason for that was um, kind of, again, kind of in my family and in the culture that I grew up, it wasn't really, you didn't necessarily talk about yourself in that way, right? We didn't really talk about emotions or really process what we were going through in, in that type of um in that type of way through stories or stuff like that. It was kind of like, <laughs> this is for dinner. This is, what are your grades? When do you have your next test? Where are you going to college? That type of thing it was very business and kind of logistic focused. So learning how to kind of identify who I was as a person and to be able to start to tell those stories I think was a really powerful thing. And if I didn't know how to do that for myself, I don't think I would be able to do that for other people um, or to be able to, to do justice to other people's stories. Um, and I think it's funny because as I've, <laughs> while I started off writing more and more about myself, as I've started in journalism more, um, the storytelling on my part and kind of like the personal essays or even the blogs and, you know, the stuff that even I share on social media necessarily has started to retreat a lot more. Um, and I'm not quite sure why that is yet, but, mm -hmm. <laughs> but it's been an interesting kind yeah. of like, you know, contraction and expansion in one area, you know, and vice versa in the other area. Yeah. Yeah. It's quite the balance. It's always interesting. And I almost feel the opposite. I think it was harder to tell my own story, but by telling so many other stories, I felt like I'm doing a 
uh, a disservice if I don't share my own in some way. And so, yeah, 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 that's really interesting. Um, when it comes to your own story and running, I'd love to dive a little bit more into that too. Um, kind of, you know, I'd love to know more about the role that running played. Um, you spoke a little bit there about kind of forming an identity around being a writer. And I often hear, and maybe this is true to surfing too, or any new sport, but a lot of runners don't, they have trouble either identifying as a runner or maybe stepping away from the sport and losing their whole identity as a person. So, you know, whether it's with identity, how did you sort of navigate the, the running world and what role did that lend in, in, in your writing career? Yeah, I think when I started running again, it was kind of a means to an end, right? Like I played sports like soccer and lacrosse and field hockey and um, tennis. And, you know, those were all running was built in part of that. And so obviously I had to do it or like had to run, you know, whatever two laps around the soccer field to, you know, at the, to warm up or whatever it was. Um, so I didn't really, for a long time, I never really saw it as a thing in and of itself, if that makes sense. Um, and I would say, even as I continued running, like in college and stuff, it was still this means to an end, right? Like it was a convenient way to work out. It was a way to stay in shape. It was a way to burn calories, you know, at that time when you're so concerned about how your body's looking and changing and everything along those lines. Um, and again, as someone who, is you know Chinese American, who you don't necessarily see a lot of Asian, Asian people, let alone Asian women involved in sports. Um, that identity as a as an athlete definitely was something that I didn't always connect with, and particularly with running because you don't see a lot of Asian runners, right? Um, so I never really thought of. It took a really long time for me to like start to say that, you know, I run or I'm a runner um, because I didn't feel like I was good enough. Like I wasn't fast. I wasn't, you know, I wasn't like, didn't look like all the professional runners, you know, all these others. I didn't, I didn't, I didn't. Um, so it made it really hard to begin to um, connect with the sport in that way. And I really don't think it was until probably around 2000s maybe even though like at this point you know I was and I think that was around the time when I started to run like marathons and half marathons and stuff like that that I was like oh wait <laughs> like I'm running a lot of miles and I'm doing these workouts and I'm doing these things and I'm you know finishing these races so maybe like maybe I am a runner maybe I can start to identify with that a little bit more um and yeah I mean it can go from like zero right where you don't identify at all to like all in pretty quickly right and get super obsessed with with everything that's going on in the sport with reading all the magazines and news articles or getting all the latest oh, gear yeah. um, so <laughs> i think like that, that transition yeah. was pretty quick um but yeah it, it took a really long time i think yeah. And what role did community play in that or having any sort of support system in terms of running? You know, was it more of an individual thing for you at first or did you gravitate towards maybe a running group or have a coach or some sort of, you know, support in place that helped you form that identity? Yeah, it was pretty um, individual for a while. So 
when I started running kind of longer distances and longer distance races, um, I'd started doing that with um, my who's Ed, who's my now husband. Um, so we were running together. And then I had one cousin who was also into running. So it would often be kind of like the three of us either running together at times or talking about running. Um, but then really later on, I would say, again, when I'd started blogging and kind of discovered this crazy world, right, of the online running community and like running blogs and everything, where it, I think that, you know, if there was any hesitancy in which I felt like, do I call myself a runner? Do I, do I count as a runner? That finding that community for sure pushed it over the edge, right? Like, it's like, oh, there's this incredibly supportive and amazing group of people out there who are, they just want to cheer you on, right? Like no matter what you're doing or how you're doing it, um, there were just people excited that other people were excited about this sport. And that I think that infectiousness um, was really important. That's a major aspect. Yeah. And you, I'm glad that you had a Overall, it sounds like a positive experience in that way to then further your interest in the sport and involvement. Yeah. yeah Do you have absolutely. any any major races or highlights thus far that have been your absolute favorite? Um, I think one of one of my favorite races, I think, was I think it was the 2013 Broad Street Run. So I had just I had had a second knee surgery probably like a year prior to that. Um, I think so that was my first like real race back. Um, and it was just, I don't know, it was something about being in Philadelphia again, like being amongst all those people that was really just and having overcome this other, <laughs> a second surgery when I felt like I hate going to physical therapy. I hate this. I feel like I'm never going to get strong again. Um, and to be able to accomplish that um, felt really good. And having my kids there, um, I think was really important too. Cause I think that that was, that was the first race that they were old enough to like see me, um, you know, run in and finish and to, you know, have their little signs out there to cheer me on and stuff, which was really great. Oh, yeah, that's the best to have a good support system, especially from your own kids. Um, how old are they now? Are they at all interested in running? They're, they're 11 and 14, and they have zero interest in running. I keep asking them, like, do you want to go run with me? They're like, nope. Oh. They, <laughs> well, just not, uh, not so much that either. They're, no. um, they're into baseball and tennis and flag football. Oh, yay. Those are fun sports, though. Well, and I'm like, you need to run for those, too. So this <laughs> right. would be a good thing. Yeah. I feel like it's one of those things, as you said, seeing running as a means to an end. It's sort of like... Yeah. I probably saw it that way a lot of times until track and field. And I realized there were all these different aspects to running that made it a little more fun or engaging as a kid. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah very neat. Thanks for sharing that. So now you're out in Brooklyn, correct? Still on the East coast. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And in terms of your running life today, you know, what is, what does that look like? Uh, during COVID times or, you know, just kind of, I know running, uh, or I was going to say, I know Brooklyn is a pr pretty active place in terms of running. I have a friend, Jess Woods there, who's a, a coach with the Brooklyn Track Club. And it seems like there's just a lot of great opportunity to get involved. So I'd love to know kind of what that looks like in your day-to-day -day now. Yeah. I mean, I think 
running looks really different during, you know, over the last year or so it's become much more about like almost subsistence in a way um, that it's just, I mean, you know, it's obviously I'm not training for anything. I'm not, you know, trying to even keep up with like a certain, you know, a specific mileage per week or anything like that. But it's really just like, I know my body and my brain needs to move and to be outside. And, you know, I'm okay at this point right now running like four to six miles, you know, when I go out and, you know, a couple times a week. And it's literally about like keeping my sanity, um, you know, having been in New York pretty much for the entire past year in small apartments and stuff like yeah. that. Um, because I found that at the beginning of the pandemic, you know, I was like, oh, at the beginning of the pan pandemic, I was kind of coming back from like a nagging injury. And, you know, I wasn't even sure if, you know, what running would look like at that time. Um, but miraculously, I was able to continue running with like my, it was almost like my knee pain went away, like overnight. And I was like, oh, clearly my, my body's trying to tell me something that it's, you know, that it knows it needs to get outside too. Um, but it was almost like I was putting a lot of pressure on myself to try to keep up with certain things that I had in my mind, whether it was a pace, whether it was mileage or whatever it was. And it was just too much stress, right? Like it was just yeah. creating a lot of extra weight that I really didn't need. Um, so this past year has been a lot about kind of letting go of a lot of those expectations and a lot of those like um, shoulds of what I think I should be doing and you know just realizing that hey the fact that I can still go out and run and my knee is not being really angry at me and you know everything seems to be okay I should be happy with that. And there's a should at the end. No, I totally, <laughs> I'm guilty of the shoulds too, as I have to watch myself sometimes. I should just be happy. But yes, I totally understand. I had a lot of pressure at first too. Gosh, it's been so long since I've done a race, but for some reason, the virtual races just weren't calling to me. I love doing it if it's for a good cause, but not to go out there and try and hammer like a 10K PR or 5K PR yeah. right now. And it's just like, I felt like I should be, I should be doing these time trials or keeping Everyone up else <laughs> right everybody else is going out and running a marathon virtually I'm like why am I not doing yeah. that but yeah you know you just got to do what you like, what's calling to you so yeah yeah it's like I have zero interest in <laughs> yeah. right now yeah exactly and I know once races come back I'll be so enthused and excited you know to yeah. to be back there so um I'd love to dive a little more into how you got involved in writing about running because running is one thing, but then actually to write stories, um, you've highlighted a number of topics, safety while running, the female athlete triad, also now called Red S, um, equality in terms of race prize money, and just so many other topics I think that are really important to be talking about, especially as it pertains to women runners. Um, so how did you initially, you know, kind of how did you maybe like what sparked this interest to write more, especially about women in the sport of running? Yeah. So, I mean, like I said, I, I've always been interested in kind of health and medicine and science um, just with my background. Um, so when I did start blogging and writing more, it kind of dawned on me. I'm like, wait a second, like <laughs> I could, you know, I'm writing about all this stuff about myself, but 
I could be writing about these types of issues, about sports, about science, about health, um, maybe for a job, right? Like maybe as my profession. So I kind of very like piecemeal kind of started my way into it. So from the blog, I kind of, I had met some folks um, who connected me with some other people and editors um, and just started pitching stories. Um, and I had originally started started writing some like gear stories for like ESPNW, you know, kind of like the, I don't know, these like five non-stinky running shirts and <laughs> yeah. types of things, uh -huh. right? Um, and, you know, kind of from there, like I knew, again, like I kind of knew that I was, I wanted to write about uh, women in sports. I knew that I wanted to um, explore this idea about sports science because I was always interested in this idea around um what makes us better, right? Like how can humans improve? Um, what are the limits of our performance? As well as, you know, what are the, the limitations too, right? As someone who's unfortunately been injured like a number of times, that's also, you know, it's kind of a little bit of like what folks say is me search, right? Like I was like, right. why am I injured all this time? I want to know about it and maybe I'll write about it. Um, so yeah, I knew that there are all these confluence of things that I wanted to kind of bring together. Um, and again, I've been really lucky to have fallen into and with some just incredible editors who let me um, explore these questions, you know, so it's like my, one of my first pieces for outside was really an opportunity to explore something that I've wanted to know for a long time, which is like, why in the world do runners lose their periods? And is that a good or bad thing? Right? Like, because we don't talk about it. And, you know, I never learned about it, really, you know, that it was a bad thing to lose your period. And, you know, potentially harmful to your long-term yeah. health it was just something and then it's that so was common like, or yeah it happens so it, often yeah right but it was just something that you knew that happened you know to right. other girls in your school or like girls in other sports or professional athletes and so okay but why like that was something that I was really curious about and that kind of just after doing that piece, it just kind of spiraled from there. And I was like, wait, but there's so many more questions I, want, I have about this whole situation. <laughs> yeah, there's so much to be learned and also like stories untold almost, you know, with it. Yeah. Yeah, like you, I've just found the more, the more I learn about other people in the sport of running or professional athletes, it's like, oh, wow, I had no idea that so-and-so was going through this experience too. Or, you know, there's a lot of that me too kind of feeling of relatability too through it all. Yeah. And I feel yeah. like that's so common for, for women and girls in particular, because I mean, it's not just something like my shin is bothering me. Is that normal? Right? Like there's, there's things that are issues that come up that are inherent to our body that we always wonder about. But again, like we never talk about, um, you know, whether it is experiences around period or so whether it's experiences like with pregnancy or postpartum, um, you know, leaking and, you know, and all yeah. of that. We're just, cause there's so much shame and stigma mm -hmm. associated with it that, you know, we don't talk about it. And so we're kind of left to wonder, um, alone by ourselves often, right? And um, there's a lot of fear that then is in, instilled in that because again, we don't have the information uh, to know. So it's it's really easy to then 
kind of <laughs> let your mind kind of wander in lots of yeah, different directions, right? Certainly. So, I mean, for me, that was something that really came out when I did start to talk, start to look into some of these issues around female athletes. Um, is this whole idea is like, we don't talk about it, right? And the reaction that I often got from, from readers was like, thank you for writing about this um, because it's something that, you know, someone has either been wondering about a lot, someone thought it was just them, something wrong with them. And it's, you know, I think that that's the biggest piece that, that kind of hurts my heart more, right? Is that when we, when something happens and we, we, we blame ourselves um, and we just think it's, it's our fault when it's, no, there's a whole constellation of, of things that are going around in your body, around you or whatever it is that are contributing to that. And it's not mm. your fault or you're deficient in some way. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And as you'll probably go into in a bit, um, the science too, a lot of the science is lacking in female or women um, in terms of the studies and the research that we have. So sometimes we don't know where to go to for, for accurate information. Um, how did yeah. this lead to you deciding to pursue and write a, a nonfiction book on women's performance? And what have been, what have maybe been some of the most surprising things you've learned throughout the process? Yeah, I mean, I think one of the things that I've learned, right, and the statistic continues to shock me, is that of um, studies on sports performance, right? So you're you're looking at some sort of intervention. So whether it's nutrition or training, say like, you know, beetroot juice, right? It's like, does it boost performance and stuff like that? Those types of studies, only 3% of those studies are done on women only, right? Um, which is bananas. That's and shocking, 3% is, and, and we're like half the population. I mean, yeah, <laughs> yeah, and this is a stat, I, I think it's a little bit older, but it's from 2015, I believe. Um, but then even when you're looking at you know, a little bit more general physiology studies, right? So not necessarily specific to exercise physiology or sports science, but just physiology in general, there are three times as many studies, single sex studies done on men versus on women, right? So it's just, you have this preponderance of information and evidence on men and kind of male bodies that we don't have that same information on women. Um, and again, it's not to say that there's necessarily gonna be like, a huge difference between the two, between men and women, right? It's not to say that like you have to do X with men and therefore you have to do Y with women. There might, there's very likely gonna be a lot of overlap. But the fact is, is like, we just don't know. Like we don't know what the, the nature of that overlap is. We don't know the nature of like where the differences might lie that might be really meaningful for women and girls, not just in terms of performance, but just in terms of health in general and their, you know, and their participation in sports. So that was something that was like, what in the world? Um, because when I saw that, I think, you know, like I said, I. I grew up studying science, grew up really interested in science, made no idea, right? You know, I, I knew that I would often look at these studies when I'm doing research for, for my articles and whatnot. And yeah, I would see as like, oh, male participants. But I, I never took the step back to kind of look at the bigger picture. I'm like, wait a second. 98 of these studies are all male participants and like two, you know, one study might have male and female participants and there's only one study with female participants only. Like I never put that together. Um, so once I started looking at that, I was like, that, that's what is going on here. Um, so that was a huge kind of impetus in looking at that. 
in thinking about writing this book. Um, the other piece of it is, again, like I said, you know, I started writing about kind of amenorrhea and losing our periods, started writing about female athlete triad and red S. I started writing a little bit about um, like uh, pregnancy and postpartum. Um, and injury rates, right? Like kind of differences between injury rates on like ACLs and stuff like that. But they're all kind of like one-off pieces here and there. Um, and I felt like we were constantly getting these one-off pieces here and there, you know, every couple of years it would kind of re-up, but there was nothing that really, you know, pulled everything together, right? And tried to um, create or tried to thread all of those pieces together in a coherent way to understand like, well, why? Why are we constantly having, you know, all of these different issues? Why do we not know enough about women in sports right now? What can we do about that? What are the, again, kind of what are the barriers? What are the limitations, right? It's like we have, an, you know, I think we can pretty much point to just like one book out there, right? Stacey Sims's Roar, yeah. which is <laughs> yeah. an amazing- It's been amazing, like, but it's like our one big- It's like, yeah, the, it's kind of like with the research studies, right? It's like, yeah. here's your one resource, right? right. But, uh, and it's done an amazing job and Stacey's, Stacey's amazing in, in kind of raising awareness on all these issues. But, you know, it's kind of like, it's 2021, right? Like we should have a little bit more information <laughs> than this at this point. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I also have to credit uh, um, Dr. Nicola Rinaldi's No Period Now What. That's been like an encyclopedia because I had amenorrhea <laughs> secondary and it was like, oh my gosh, this is like the encyclopedia of everything you need to know. But it is, it's very concentrated on the one topic. And so, like you said, there's there needs to be some sort of thread that ties this all together. And I think there's room for way more than just one voice on this. And so the more researchers, I mean, Stacey Sims is one person as much as she probably wants to to talk to everyone about it. I think if we can have more voices, um, you know, discussing this topic, bringing more people's voices to light and especially relating to research, I, I think it can't be uh, covered enough. So thank you for doing this good work and for tackling this book. And how is, how's the writing process going? I heard you on Allie on the Run show, um, your episode 290 <laughs> for those listening, go listen. Um, but that, you know, I think that was uh, months and months ago, probably a hundred episodes back on her pod. So how's everything been thus far? And you know what, um, I don't want to say what can listeners expect, but do you have any sort of a insider preview into maybe what's to come in the next six months or a year down the road? Yeah. So, I mean, essentially the book looks at this underrepresentation, right, of women and and female participants in, in sports science and exercise physiology research. So, you know, I look historically and social culturally, right? Like what kind of led us to this place where we tend to default to men? Um, what are some of those implications of that for girls and women in sports? So looking at things like, like we were talking about injury rates, looking at how that affects endurance, looking at how that affects, like we were saying, um, different life stages, right? So pregnancy and postpartum, perimenopause, postmenopausal period, um, and just really trying to highlight all the incredible and amazing work that researchers around the world are doing because they're doing some really cool stuff. Um, and, you know, really just the amount of work in the last, for sure in the last 10 years, but, you know, just kind of growing over the last, you know, 30 years or so has just really exploded. Um, and so trying to make some sense of that, like, what do we, what do we know? What don't we know? Um, what questions do we still have? Because 
Right. Science takes a long time. And if you really think about it, we've only really started studying female athletes in the late 18, uh, 1980s, 1990s, right? That's only been 30 years, whereas men have been the subject of research since the early 1900s. Um, so they have a, a pretty big head start on us. Um, so it's been really fun to dive into all of that research. Um, I, there are times when I feel like I may have bitten off a bit more than I can chew because, right, like I said, like it, it, the book covers a wide range of topics and each of those chapters probably could be a book in and of itself. Um, so it's been, you know, it's definitely been challenging trying to cull through all the research um, and, you know, distill all of that information. I probably am halfway, a little bit more than halfway through in terms of drafting my chapters and they're very much drafts, right? Like they still need a ton of work and, um, and kind of revision. Um, but yeah, it's been, it's been an amazing process so far. That's incredible. And I'm so excited for, for seeing this book down the road and being able to dive in and read it. And um, I'd love to know too, it sounds like there's probably, you know, oftentimes when we go searching for answers, we come up with even more questions. I'd love to know if there's anything that you've sort of garnered as like, but we still need more of this, especially for those listening that are maybe young and just getting into academia or just looking into research. Like where are some maybe gaps in your eyes of what more we can do in terms of, you know, one is of course getting more female research participants, right? But are there any questions that are just maybe personally on your mind as it relates to women in sport? Yeah, I mean, it's funny when I kind of set off to write this book, I think in the back of my mind, I figured I'll read some, <laughs> I'll read some journal articles and, and research papers. I'll talk to some athletes and to some of the scientists and like put it all together. It'll be fine. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I think that one of the things that's really stuck out for me is that it's not like, even though this book is looking at underrepresentation of women and female physiology, female bodies specifically, that it's not just about kind of biological sex and kind of anatomy, physiology, blah, 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 right? That there's so much, while we can do research that looks at things like we were talking about those nutritional interventions, like beetroot juice and stuff like that, but we also have to step back and, and, and consider the, the broader environment, right? Like what's, what are the, the women's kind of skill level coming into this? What is the, their, um, their access to facilities and training? What's their access to coaches and what level are those coaches and skill, you know, kind of expertise? Um, because again, you know, as we're seeing, even just with like the NCAA, you know, a basketball tournament, there's still just this huge disparity between men's sports and women's sports. And so when you think about that, in terms of say something like injury, um, you know, that can be a huge thing because when we look at something like ACL injuries, we often, we often kind of just blame female physiology, right? We're just defective in some ways because our, our hips are wider because the, the notch in our knee is like, I can't remember if it's narrower or smaller or bigger, but you know, whichever one it is, our, you know, our quads are too strong compared to our hamstrings. And those types of things are all kind of sure they're risk factors, but what's led to those risk factors. And there's a lot of researchers out there that are 
really pushing this question forward to say, we really need to consider the whole environment and the whole system in which athletes are working within. Um, because right, like at the, at the NCAA tournament, the, the guys have this huge weight room and the girl and the women have this like single, you know, weight tree, you know, with nothing more than 30 pound weights. And if that's the environment in which women are training in, of course, their strength may not be on par, right? With the men and their, their injury rates might be different. Or if they're not learning how to play sport, they're not encouraged how to learn how to play sport when they're younger, of course, that's gonna affect their movement patterns as they get older. Um, so that's actually the piece that I'm super interested in right now. Um, and I think it's something that, you know, as researchers look more into this, it's an important piece that also needs to be considered you know, when they are talking about their participants. So for sure, it's, it's a plus to talk about, you know, to have women participants in general. It's even better if you're talking about their, you know, what cycle of their menstrual, you know, what phase of their menstrual cycle that they're in, and you're actually testing that and confirming that in research where it makes sense. But on top of that too, right, it's like, it's, might also be helpful too to talk about the background of those athletes that you're that you're testing so again you can kind of control for some of these variables and understand how some of these other variables might be coming into play yeah yeah absolutely as you're speaking i was thinking i my mind tends to also try to weave and connect uh topics and you know something i wanted to bring up too is this underrepresentation and running in general not just for women but for you know different backgrounds different communities um you know people that are like wheelchair runners for instance or um our our bipoc communities like i just want to highlight that that's another good question there. And I think that a lot of times we try to answer that from one lens or one, oh, it has to be because of this. Or like, why don't yeah. I have more, more community showing up to my group runs? Oh, it's, it's this, this is why. And I see that a lot of times with just people I'm talking to as they wanna point to one thing, but to consider the whole context and the, the background, the upbringing, the environment. Um, so yeah, I'd love for you to, if you want to speak a bit to that too, like, is that something you see um, across the board, you know, not just for women and running. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think, I mean, you could even take last week's shootings in Atlanta, for example, um, in that it's a really complicated narrative, right? Especially when you're talking about communities like Asian Americans, Pacific Islanders, where we're often all conflated into one single entity, right? And that usually looks like East Asians, right? So Korean, Chinese, Japanese, um, and East Asians of a certain ilk, right? So kind of conforming to this idea of the model minority, like the people who do well in school, who are engineers and, and doctors and, and whatever it is, and um, kind of benefit from the system. Whereas, I think what last week really showed is it's a hell of a lot more complicated than that. And it's um, not only not only in terms of like, we're not just one monolith, but like there's a wide range of experiences and historical experiences that play into what really happened, right? So, I mean, you can't look at something like what happened in Atlanta without considering um, just 
from the beginning of time, right? Like the kind of fetishization, I can never say that word, of, you know, of Asian women, you know, primarily by, you know, by white folks and, you know, white men in particular, where you have like immigration policies from the late 1800s that specifically exclude and, you know, Chinese women because we're presumed to be too temptatious, right? You know, we're presumed to be sex, you know, sex workers and that type of thing. Um, and that's, it's, it's hard not to consider that type of history. So, I mean, you know, just to your point, right? Like it's, it, all, all of it kind of is, is influenced by history, by, you know, individual experience, by um, culture, by, our own prejudices and our own biases, right? And kind of the lens in which we grow up and that we see the world. Um, and it's never one thing. Um, so I think, I think it's just an important point like that, I mean, that you're bringing up that we really do just need to consider the wider picture and the whole system in which all of these things are, are coming into play. And that, you know, as much as we wanna make it as simple as possible, right? Like. I mean, kind of taking it back to the science, like that's what scientists want to do. They want to make it as simple as possible. So they have a model to explain like mm -hmm. X, Y, Z phenomenon, but like, it's never that simple. We're not yeah. just working in a Petri dish. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That's a really good point. And I think just applying it to the running community, as I see a lot of race directors or running club leaders wanting to bring more diversity, but then not considering the bigger context or even their surrounding city, suburbs, community, and how they might take their group run to a different neighborhood, for instance, or how that might, I mean, that's one simple thing, but they want like a one simple solution. Well, and yeah, what are well, you going to yeah, say? Or even, no, I was just going to say that, you know, or even just what their idea of what a running group and a group run looks like might be really different from what it actually looks like in a different community, right? Like in a black or brown community or in an Asian community or something like that, like in a native community that it might have, <laughs> it might just look really different and have a different significance than what, you know, folks are kind of normally picture with like the sun, you know, the Saturday or Sunday long, you know, long run group, you know, hanging out and like meeting up for coffee afterwards or whatever it is, which is, you know, not again, not to say that it, there's anything wrong with that, but they're just, they're just different iterations of the same thing. That's very true. Yeah, I think that's an excellent point. And for one instance, I talked with a friend out in LA who's part of a run club and they go almost at midnight and that's their idea of a run club. And I'm like, that's great. I'm not a midnight runner, <laughs> but <laughs> you know, it can look very different uh, for, you know, uh, different run clubs even. So yeah, definitely um, not everyone's idea of a run is, is a Sunday run club and coffee. So <laughs> I like how you put that. Yeah, good way to put it. Um, I guess, you know, we're probably at the point to wrap up pretty soon, but is there anything we didn't highlight or touch that you wanted to? And one of my questions that I forgot to ask was, what's been your favorite? It's probably like a, you're like, oh man, really? But what is your favorite? <laughs> <laughs> or like, she's asking me this, but um, do you have a favorite all-time story you've written on? Or maybe one that's really kind of changed your trajectory of your writing career? Um, in terms of like changing the trajectory of my running career, I probably would say the, the first 
story I wrote for outside around um, amenorrhea and runners, again, largely because that kind of just started to open a door for me to explore this intersection between science and sport. Um, that again, I didn't realize I could do um, and that I really wanted to do <laughs> until I started doing it right. Um, and so I think that obviously I wouldn't be where I am now and kind of writing this book now had it not been for those that first story. Um, in terms of all times, it's a hard question. I know. Um, <laughs> Your book. I mean, you I think. Or... <laughs> no, I'm like no. at this point. No, the book's really sucky. Once it's done. <laughs> Once it's done and been edited and yeah. fixed. Um, I mean, the other story that has been really meaningful to me has was that runner's world story on um, you know women running in fear because again, it's some. You know, I feel like we constantly, you know, every couple of years, every year, every, you know, every time, you know, another woman is assaulted or killed, you know, we have these, um, these types of stories that pop up. Um, but I think what I, the reason I like that story and the, what I tried to do was, again, kind of center it on women and their experiences. Um, so through their stories to try to, try to show you know, the fear, right? Like the feeling of being like chased down by a car that you have no idea who's intent, you know, what their intent is, or to be like running side by side by someone on a beach path and they're acting like bananas and, you know, and kind of aggressive. And again, you're not really sure what their intent is um, to kind of legitimize those feelings because I'm sure most of us have had something like that happen to us. And then we've, kind of, you know, whether it's a couple minutes later or when we get home or whatnot, it's kind of been like, oh, I was probably just imagining it or wasn't that big of a deal, it's fine. Like I was just, you know, I was blowing it out of proportion when maybe, maybe not, right? And it's not to say that people need to be running running in fear all the time, but it is to legitimize this, this feeling that we do have um, sometimes when we are out on the street. Um, so trying, you know, centering it on those stories, but also trying to show, you know, somewhat of a range of different experiences that it's not always like getting a knife pulled on you. It's not always, you know, a car chasing you, but there's, you know, harassment can, again, there's a huge spectrum of what that looks like and feels like for people. Absolutely. Yeah. I couldn't have said it better. And I, I have a few friends who I, I think there was the national safety day, like maybe last month or a few weeks ago, time is just of the essence now. But um, I know on that day, I had a friend or two that shared their own experience, uh, a really scary one at that. And then, you know, it started a conversation among friends, um, you know, hey, I went through that same exact thing and, or not that same exact thing, but it, like in a different context, right? And it can occur in daylight. It can occur at, you know, 5 a.m. on a trail when you're by yourself in the woods and just like, being really conscientious and aware of, of that it can happen to anyone anywhere. So yeah, I think your story really highlighted that. And I do recall uh, reading your story when it first came out and just being like, wow, this is something that needs to be reshared and re like continued to be talked about. So um, really, really awesome, awesome work. And just thank you for bringing these stories to light. It's important. Oh, thanks. Yeah. So I'd love to know uh, what's been something or someone maybe that's sparked inspiration for you lately, like whether it's a, a runner, another writer, someone close to you, anything that's been sparking you to um, feel inspired. 
Um, so I think most recently, um, it's the work that Alicia Montano is doing with her nonprofit and mother to support to support moms who are trying to pursue an athletic career and the grants that she's given to, to the three women um, who are pursuing their Olympic bids. Um, but really, I mean, she's doing amazing work, but I, I, I thought about that mostly in terms of, I don't know if you saw the new Nike ad that came out that was highlighting like pregnant women and, and moms. Um, but both Alicia and Allison Felix had had spoken out about it. And, um, you know, on the one hand, great for Nike to, to be highlighting these women and to be um, <laughs> recognizing, right, that they're valuable athletes um, and members of their community, um, which I think is, you know, we can pretty much say is largely attributable to the work that Alicia and Allison Felix and Kara Goucher did, what, two years? I don't even remember when <laughs> they spoke out, unless I think it was like 2019. Um, yeah. that, that really sparked the conversation. But at the same time, um, it's also really disheartening in the way that, um, that Nike hasn't really acknowledged right all of that work and kind of have just kind of what's felt to me as someone who was watching it kind of just stepping on and stepping over these women yet again um so the fact that like alicia has, has built this nonprofit organization is and is really continuing to push this work and to push the importance of it i think it's it's amazing um and it's incredible absolutely yeah and i think you did a great job there of just highlighting the fact that there is so it can be missed or we're remiss not to mention all of the background to that as well. Um, like you said there, so really, really important. But again, props to, I guess, props to Nike in a sense to bring that to light. And I, I do think it has been reshared and really resonated by a lot of moms out there, especially. Um, so what advice I'd love to know for someone that's interested in writing, this is sort of a, what do we call that? A me something. I'm someone who yeah. wants to, wants to write more, but um, <laughs> for someone who's listening who maybe like doesn't consider themselves a writer, like wants to start blogging, you know, where would you, um, yeah, maybe what advice generally would you give to, to that someone, or maybe to your younger former self before beginning writing? Yeah, I mean, I would, um, I would suggest starting kind of like a, just a free writing process, uh, practice. Um, I am the type of person and writer who has a really strong inner critic. So anytime that I write a sentence or, you know, there's someone standing on my shoulder basically telling me it sucks and this is terrible and what are you even thinking and doing? Um, so I found that this, this free writing process really helps to kind of <laughs> put that inner critic at bay a little bit. So it's essentially, um, you know, it's, you can call it like wild writing. Um, Lauren Fleshman has, has done this and she's, she's led a couple sessions on Instagram. I, in the past, um, but it's essentially you just write for 10 minutes. So you can pick a poem, you can pick any prompts or whatever. You set a timer and you just write, preferably longhand um, in a notebook on a scrap piece of paper, whatever it is. And you just keep writing for 10 minutes. You don't stop um, until that timer goes off. So you don't go back, you don't correct things, you don't go change things. Um, and if you kind of get stuck, you just, 
you can keep writing that prompt over and over again, or, you know, there's some other tricks that you can keep doing, but essentially it's just to get you to just get words on the page and get used to just getting words on the page, even if they're crappy. Um, and you don't necessarily even have to do anything with that, right? Like it, I have a whole, I have multiple notebooks that just sit somewhere in my office. Like I don't even know where they are. I never look back at them for the most part, right? But it's again, it's just to kind of grease the wheels and to get me to stop judging a lot of what I do because writing really is just practice and doing it over and over and over again. And you, like with anything, you start to get better. You start to figure out pace and description and, and all of that. Um, so that would be, that would be a bit, one piece of advice I would give. I love that first step. Um, and how you mentioned, so Lauren Fleshman and Wilder, like the writing, she does writing retreats too. I've heard are really popular. People love those. Yeah. Do you have any yeah, other, whether a, it's, have you been or? I've been to her Wilder retreats twice and they are, oh, wow. they're amazing. They're fantastic. Yeah. Great to hear. I was going to ask if there's any other like tools, resources. I know there's the artist's way, for instance, I have that notebook or, you know, um, journal prompts or maybe, you know, podcast books, anything else that's maybe sparked um, inspiration or helped you along your writing journey? Yeah. So actually Lauren's writing teacher, one of her writing teacher is this woman, uh, Lori Wagner. And so Lori does these, um, does these like wild writing sessions every once in a while. Sometimes she does them, you know, a week for free, other ones you pay for. Um, and so those are really nice because it, it's kind of, you're doing this in community with other people. Um, Sarah Caney runs uh, Rise Run Retreat. Um, so she, you know, she does this, you know, com some combinations of like other virtual retreats, some in-person retreats. Um, again, those are really great for kind of community building and, you know, kind of giving you space to step back and reflect on your running. But she's also, I think, on Instagram providing some journal prompts that, you know, are kind of really helpful as well. Um, and then the one other book that I would suggest is by Natalie Goldman, Writing Down the Bones. Ooh, okay. I haven't heard that one. That's one that I'm going to definitely add to my repertoire. Thanks now I'm for afraid sharing. that I got her last name right, but no. <laughs> but the, <laughs> but the book check. is Writing Down the Bones. <laughs> Writing Down the Bones. I love that. Yeah. Yeah. Sounds like a good read. Um, well, thank you. Thanks again for sharing some of your writing wisdom, especially for our budding writers that are tuning in or, I mean, really everyone's a writer, right? In some sense, it's just about embracing that identity and getting pen on paper. So I really like that Absolutely. approach. So um, last question for you is what does being a strong runner chick mean to you? I think it's, you know, I think a couple of years ago, I probably would say, oh, it's if you're running XYZ time or whatever it is, but I think it's really just continuing to show up every day or not even every day, right? Like, you know, showing up when you do show up for runs for your life, that you're there hundred um, percent in whatever that means for you that day, right? Cause that can also change and, and ebb and flow a bit, but that you are, you just continue to show up for yourself every day. Hmm. Yeah. Showing up first step. I think that, and that applies to writing too, to show up each day. And I did find for you just to make sure we got it right, Natalie Goldberg. So 
go check it out. You can buy it for used on Amazon for like less than $2 with shipping, I'm pretty sure. So it's pretty amazing in my opinion, less than $2 for a great novel and um, or great piece of piece of art to help you start writing more. So thanks again, um, Christine, for joining us. It was a pleasure to chat with you and Really hope everyone enjoyed this episode and tunes into your new book. Um, well, definitely, I, I heard Allie say this on her show, and I'm like, we're going to have to have several book clubs uh, to chat through all of what you provide us with. So I'm, I'm looking forward to it. There are so many great books coming out about whether it's women and mostly women in sport, right, that that are due out in the next year or so. It's It's pretty exciting. Yeah, I absolutely can't wait for them. So lots of new reads, new reads to add to our list. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah. Thanks again. Thanks for listening to the Strong Runner Chicks Radio. Do us a favor and leave a review in iTunes to help spread awareness and foster the SRC community. Additionally, make sure to follow us on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter at Strong Run Chicks.